Well, turn with me now, if you would, to the book of Romans in chapter 8. If you're here and you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to use one of those uh, in the seats in front of you. Uh, you'll find our passage this morning in those Bibles on page 945. Uh, we've been working our way through this great chapter, verse by verse. And this morning, I want to begin reading in verse 31. But verses 33 and 34 will be our focus. So we'll begin reading in verse 31, and then verses 33 and 34 will be our focus. And let me remind you, these are not some words of some mere man. It is the very Word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So let me begin by asking you a question. How should you think about yourself? How should you think about yourself? How should you view yourself? The world gives us very mixed messages on this question. On the one hand, as we've talked about many times, the world tries to teach us that we are all basically good at heart. The world tells you that you should view yourself in a positive light. In fact, it goes further. The world tells you that you should see yourself as one who is entitled to the world's goods and the world's pleasures. Advertisement after advertisement, politician after politician, popular song after popular song, all ring with this common theme. Don't you deserve this? In recent months, I've seen several times a commercial by a chocolate company. And as the lady in the ad takes a succulent bite of this piece of chocolate, There's a song in the background, and it says, it's the little reward for all those things you do. Or the new Tylenol slogan, for everything we do, we know you do so much more. Therefore, you should buy Tylenol. Spas, furniture companies, They offer their products and their services with slogans like, don't you deserve to relax once in a while? Politicians, don't you deserve a representative you can trust? Don't you deserve a government that cares about your needs? One popular song from years ago saying, don't you deserve someone, baby? Don't you deserve true love? Don't you deserve a chance at true romance? Baby, come take a chance with me. 
the seduction of that song represents the seduction of this world. The world tries to make us think that we are good at heart so that we will follow our hearts. And following our hearts means that we will pursue worldly things, the world's goods, the world's pleasures, which often means people make a buck off of us feeling pretty good about ourselves. The Bible gives a pretty clear answer to the world's good at heart doctrine. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. The best way to get yourself in trouble as a fallen human being is to follow your heart. Your heart, the Bible says, is deceitful. There is none who are good. No, not one. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that the doctrine of original sin and the depravity of man is the one doctrine that can be proven without a shadow of a doubt because all you have to do is open your eyes and look around with an objective mind. All you have to do is look at yourself with an objective mind. And we see that we are not basically good at heart, at least not by nature. We are a fallen people. But at the same time that the world preaches this good at heart doctrine, it also preaches another doctrine. Like the pendulum of a clock, we often see the messages we're receiving from the world go from one extreme to the other. And just as often as you're being told that you're good at heart, you're also being told you don't matter. And that you're not worth very much. When the world wants you to buy something, boy, are you special. But when you're in the world's way, well, then you're worthless. And unfortunately for many, this message begins at home. I've heard many stories in recent days of children growing up in homes where the parents tell them that they are good for nothing. How many children have to listen to a daily barrage of put-downs and insults from their own parents? How many children have been forsaken by one of their parents, often their fathers, left with a sense that they're not worth anything to them, that they're of no value, that they're not to be cherished? This message is also taught outside of the home. Frankly, there are a lot of people in this world who will treat you as if you're garbage. Uh, Some of you may get this from your peers at school, or even from a, a teacher who treats you as if you'll never amount to much. There are many good teachers in this world, but it only takes one authority figure in the life of a child to say something like this, and it can affect the child for a very long time. Some of you may go to jobs where you are treated as expendable. You're just a cog in a bigger machine. You're you're someone to be taken for granted. People of other religious beliefs and other political persuasions treat you as a blight on this earth. This world would be better off if people like you didn't exist. I have no doubt that many people in our lives despite our best efforts for peace and reconciliation, 
despise us. There may be people in this world that hate you. As if this wasn't enough, how often do our own hearts begin to accuse us? You see another husband or another wife, another mom or another dad. You see a co-worker, you see a friend, and you think, that person seems to have it all together. And your conscience begins to scream at you, why are you so messed up? Why don't you have it all together the way they do? Why are the little things so hard for you? Why is your life such a disaster? You know you're probably screwing up your kids. You know your spouse would probably be happier with somebody else. You know that often the things you touch, they fall apart. You keep letting people down. And your mind will bring thought after thought after thought like that to your attention. Then you begin to remember some of the things you've done. And you become paralyzed by past sins or even present sins. How could God love someone like me? Surely He could never love someone like me. I'm nothing more than a walking catastrophe. Then there's the devil. The world accuses you. Your flesh accuses you. And then there's the devil, who the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren. And it's the devil who appeals to the holiness of God and says to God, do you see, God, what so-and-so has done? Do you see how her sins stack up against her? God, don't you see how he went too far with his girlfriend? Don't you see how she backstabbed her friends? Don't you see how he lied to his boss? How she keeps giving in to anxiety? How he keeps losing his temper? Don't you see, God? And the devil appeals to the holiness of God and says, God, you are holy. You must condemn. You must condemn if you are a holy God. And the devil's right. The Bible agrees with the devil on this one. We are all sinners worthy of hell. But as the father of lies, he takes it a little bit further. He begins to whisper in our ears that we're now worth nothing. He whispers in our ears that we are irredeemable, unsalvageable, Garbage. There's no hope for us. Dear friend, how do you view yourself? And do you view yourself the way the Bible teaches you to view yourself? When we come to the Bible, we find God's truth on this matter. And if we're going to see ourselves accurately as we really are, then we need to see God's assessment of us so that we can see ourselves through His assessment. Because His assessment is the true assessment. The way God views us is the way we ought to be viewed. God is objective. And He loves us enough to tell us the truth about us. What does God say about us? Well, first, 
You have intrinsic dignity as a human being created in the image of God. Dear friend, there is no such thing as a worthless human being. Christian or non-Christian, no one is worthless. Heaven-bound believer or hell-bound unbeliever, both have a common dignity as human beings. All human life, whether in the womb or out of the womb, healthy or disabled, conscious or unconscious, intelligent or unintelligent, black, white, or anything in between, rich or poor, attractive or unattractive, loving or unloving, all human life is valuable and worthy of our protection and our respect because all human life is at least to a degree a display of some of the attributes of God Himself. Every human being, no matter what the individual circumstances, is a part of a race that was given the distinction of being the the rulers and royalty of this planet. And if you ever treat anyone as worthless, you commit a grave sin, not only against them, but against the God that made them. If anyone ever tells you or treats you like you are garbage, don't take it to heart. You are not. Reject that for what it is. A lie from the pit of hell. You are a human being created in the image of God. But then second, the Bible does tell us that we are sinners. We are cosmic criminals deserving of an everlasting judgment. You have loved other things more than the infinitely worthy God. You have lied. You have cheated. You have thought terrible thoughts. You have broken God's good laws. And as a good judge, He must punish you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Eternal death in hell. This does not make you worthless. God wouldn't take the time to condemn you if you were worthless. It is because you do have intrinsic worth and value that a place like hell must exist. It is because you are important that your sins are important. And God would be unjust to ignore them. But then third, the Bible tells us that if we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, then we are justified sinners. Yes, we're sinners. But dear Christian, you are a justified sinner. Your sins have been forgiven. Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to your account. When God looks at you, He doesn't see the sins of your past, the sins of your present, the sins of your future. When God looks at you, He sees the very perfection of Jesus Christ. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Which means that God's attitude towards you is one of blessing, followed by more blessing, topped with more blessing forevermore. 
When God looks at you, He does not see a guilty soul. He sees a righteous soul, a pure soul, a blameless soul. Not because you are blameless yet, but because Christ's blamelessness has been accounted to you. God sees you in Christ. And you're counted righteous in Him. So in our Mount Hermon Catechism... We have a question, what is justification? Here's the answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which He pardons all our sins and declares us righteous in His sight on the basis of Christ's substitutionary life and death, imputing Christ's righteousness to us. Dear Christian, this is how the Bible says that you are to view yourself. You are a human being created in the image of God with intrinsic worth and dignity. You are a sinner guilty of terrible crimes deserving of hell. But by the free grace of God, you have been redeemed and God's Spirit is making you holy. You are a justified person, a saved person, a deeply loved and heaven-bound child of the Most High. See yourself that way. See yourself that way. Yes, make sure you don't forget that you're a sinner. That's important. Make sure you don't forget the hell you deserve. Forget that and you'll become prideful and you'll make shipwreck of your faith. But also, don't forget that you are redeemed in Christ and that you are to live every day in light of that reality. Now, that's the message of these two verses. Let me show it to you in these two verses. I've I've really preached what Paul was preaching in these two verses, but let me me now show you that that's, that's the case. Paul asked two questions in verses 33 and 34. Both of these questions come from a courtroom setting. Uh, Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And what he means there is not that people cannot charge you with wrong. People can charge you with wrong. Of course they can. And people probably have. People can legitimately charge you with wrong when you've done something wrong. And they can illegitimately charge you with wrong when you haven't. And certainly the devil, the accuser of your soul, seeks to charge you with wrong before God. But when Paul asks, who can bring any charge against God's elect? What he means is this. Who can possibly bring any charge against you that is going to stick to you? Who can possibly bring any charge against you that is going to stand against you on the last day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ? And the answer is absolutely no one. No one can bring any charge against you that is going to affect you in the long term. Your every sin has been paid for. Do you see how Paul gives the answer? It is God who justifies. Meaning, there's no higher court. There there is no higher judge. 
There is no supremer court. The devil can't say, what God? You're, you're declaring him blameless? This criminal God? You're declaring him innocent on the basis of Christ Jesus? I appeal. Who can he appeal to? It is God who justifies. If God has declared you guiltless, you are guiltless indeed. As Charles Hodge says, these verses show how fully the security of believers is provided for in the plan of redemption. What is it they have left to fear under the righteous government of a righteous and powerful God? There is nothing to be feared but sin, and since that is pardoned and removed, there is nothing left to fear. Do you hear that, dear soul? Paralyzed by the accusations of the world, the devil, and your flesh. If you are in Christ, you are justified. You have nothing to fear. And then Paul kind of asked the same question in a different way in verse 34. Who is to condemn? In other words, who can sit as judge and jury over your life and pronounce a verdict? And, of course, there are lots of people that might want to sit as judge and jury over your life and pronounce a verdict. But guess what? None of them ultimately can. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. Notice the emphasis is not first and foremost on what Jesus did. It's first and foremost on who it is that did the work. Namely, it is Jesus who died. The emphasis is on the person of Christ. Why can nobody in this world and no spiritual force and not even your own flesh condemn you? Why can no one condemn you? Because the one who died for you was the very Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. This was not some schmuck who laid down his life for you. This was not another sinful human being your mom or your dad or your spouse or a loved one who died for you. If that was true, then, then there might be some reason for you to still be condemned. But no. In whom is your justification before God? In whom are you redeemed and declared guiltless and heaven-bound? It is in Jesus Christ. The word Christ is His title. He is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the One appointed by God for this work. The word Jesus is His actual name. And what does the name Jesus mean? Salvation. What did the angel tell Joseph? Call Him Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. The One in whom you have your justification is the Messiah of God. The One whose very name is salvation. And if this is the One who has died for you, surely there is no one who can truly condemn you. How did Romans 8 begin? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And like a good symphony, Romans 8 begins and ends with the same theme, only at the end it is taken to greater heights. 
Now, what can we say about this one who has died for us and secured our justification before God? Paul tells us four things in verse 34. Let's see them quickly. Number one, Paul says he died. How is God just to forgive sinners like us? Because Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came and He died for His people. When the Son of God has come and died for you, how can that sacrifice be insufficient? Will any judge say, oh, Christ has died for you? That's not enough. Justice requires more than the infinitely precious blood of Christ. Will any judge say that? No, and certainly not the true judge, Christ Himself. When the Son of God has come and died for you, your sins are fully taken care of. He has propitiated the wrath of God. Uh, You remember the illustration we've shared so many times about Martin Luther and the devil. Martin Luther has this dream in which he is visited by Satan, and Satan hands Luther this this long list that it, it just goes all the way across the floor. It's a scroll, and it's all the sins that Martin Luther has ever committed. And the devil is saying to Luther, do you see these? Do you see these? Is it true? Did you write this? Meaning, did you commit these sins? And in terror, Luther confesses to the devil, yes, yes, these are my sins. Scroll after scroll is unrolled, and each one contains lists of every sin Luther ever committed in thought, in word, and in deed. And Luther is distraught, and he's brought to this state of utter misery. And as the devil turns to leave, thinking that he's accomplished his task, In the dream, Luther turned to Satan and said, It is true. Every word on those scrolls is true. But write on them all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the truth of our atonement. Jesus died to atone for our sins so that we would be justified by God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who put an end to all my sin. Paul doesn't stop there. He tells us secondly, not only that Christ died, but that Christ was raised. You see that he's just preaching the Gospel to us again. It's what we always need. It's what we always need. The Gospel. Even as Christians, we don't stop needing the Gospel and need something else. We always need the Gospel. He's preaching it to us again. Jesus died. Jesus was raised. And the resurrection of Jesus was huge in so many ways. But in this context, Paul was saying, here's the important thing. Jesus died, which means the price He paid on the cross, it was accepted by His Father. Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that the full price has been paid. The wages of sin is death. Since the price for our sins has been paid, Jesus' death is over. And He gets up from the dead. Have you ever gone to your mailbox and had the wonderful experience of opening up a letter from your bank or from a company 
and you read on your statement, paid in full. Maybe it was that vehicle you've been making payments on for months and months and months. Or maybe there's even some of you who've paid on a house for years and years and you thought we'll never get this. And finally there's that day and you get that statement. Paid in full. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's declaration that the payment for sin was over. He has accepted it. No more judgment is needed. And therefore, no hell for you, dear Christian. What Christ did was sufficient. But Paul doesn't stop. His first argument was enough. You cannot be condemned. Why? Jesus died for you. He could have stopped there. But he went further. Jesus was raised for you, meaning God accepted the payment. He's just showing you layer after layer after layer of firm concrete underneath your feet. He is showing you how firm the foundation is you're standing on. And now he removes yet another layer and says, look, there's a third layer. For not only did Christ die, and not only was he raised, but what? He's at the right hand of God. He is at the right hand of God. The one in whom you have placed your trust is the one who has now been given all power and authority over heaven and over earth. The one in whom you are trusting. He sits at the right hand of God. Even the authority to judge has been given to Him. On the last day, when you come into that courtroom and you look up at the judge in the judge's seat, who's going to be there? But the one who died for you, your bridegroom, the lover of your soul, will be the one responsible to pronounce the verdict. Can you have any doubt what he's going to pronounce? Can you have any fear that he's going to say anything other than, I died for you. You are forgiven. Come and be with me forever. Every layer of this foundation has been enough to guarantee your security, but then he reveals yet a fourth layer of concrete underneath your feet. For Jesus died, he was raised, he sits at the right hand of God, and also he is right now, this moment, presently, interceding for you. In other words, Jesus' work of securing your salvation and making sure you are safe with God, He didn't just do it in the past and it's done. No. He is even presently interceding for you. The intercession of Christ means that Jesus presents Himself before God right now, forever, as the Lamb of God slain on your behalf. This is true for you if you have trusted Jesus. In the Old Testament, atonement for sins was not made until the great high priest went into the Holy of Holies, took the blood from the animal that was sacrificed, and presented it before God in the Holy of Holies. Jesus has taken Himself into the Holy of Holies called heaven, and He presents Himself with the marks in His hands before His Father, is the security of your salvation forever and ever. The Puritans used to say that Jesus is pleading the merits of His blood on our behalf. And that every time we sin, 
and try as hard as we, as we can, we're going to sin today. We're, we're, we're sinning now in some way, I'm sure. We're constantly sinning and not even knowing it. Every time we sin, Jesus is right there before the Father as our advocate saying, See? Forgiven. Pardoned. We celebrate this every time we sing the hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. It says, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Every time you sin, Jesus is standing before his Father with his wounds crying out, Forgive that sinner. And you are forgiven. John puts it this way, 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now that isn't all. Jesus' intercession for you means that right now Christ is praying to the Father for you. Right now Jesus is bringing to the Father petitions on your behalf. And dear friend, as much as the Father loves the Son, do you think that any petition He brings to the Father on your behalf is going to be refused? Do you think Jesus ever brings anything to the Father and says, my my servant down here, my loved one down here, she really needs some patience today. you think the Father says, no Jesus, I'm not going to give you that. No, not when it's Jesus who asks. Jesus will always make sure that you have what you need from the Father to make it each and every day so that His grace is sufficient for every trial you face and you make it safely to the last breath you breathe so that you die in faith and enter into the very presence of God. You see, Christ is still working for your salvation. He is still your Savior, concerned for you, looking on you with love, actively working for you this very moment, sustaining your faith. What do we take from all this? John Stott says, we can therefore confidently challenge the universe. You ever want to challenge the universe? He says, we can confidently challenge the universe with all of its inhabitants, human and demonic. And we can say... Who is he that condemns? And John Stott says, there will never be an answer. You remember how wicked Goliath would come out among the people of Israel and the armies of Israel, and he would issue his great challenge, will anyone come and fight me? And of course, no one would go out against that giant, the champion of the Philistines. Goliath trusted in his unusual strength and his unusual height. But friends, you and I, we can go out now and proclaim to the whole world a very different kind of challenge. We can dare the whole world saying, who dares bring any charge against me? Who dares condemn me when God is my justifier, when Christ is the one who died and rose and is at the right hand of God and intercedes for me? Who will condemn and serve? No one. I am forever secure in the love of God. Dear Christian, you are forever secure in the love of God.
And Paul has now taught you that same truth in, what, seven verses in a row? And guess what he's going to teach you in the next verses we're going to look at? That's what this is all about. Security. So that you have the boldness to leave this room and go out there and obey and love and witness and not be afraid. Because you're safe. All of this is ours undeservedly. All of this is ours only through the grace and the mercy of God. Is it not overwhelming? Does it not inspire you not to self-esteem, but to God-esteem? That our confidence not be in ourselves, but our confidence is in our God who has been so good to us. In the confidence that we have through Christ, we can stand tall in this world. We can give ourselves boldly to obedience. We can give ourselves to love. We can give ourselves to service. Amen? Let's pray.